Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. First, representatives from three different movie presentations, all with different modes of being released. First, there's Michael Scott of Pure Flix presenting the movie Samson, which has just gone into theaters the weekend of this podcast. Then it's John Irwin, involved in the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon, about the life of the Hollywood actor and the commitment to Christ he made late in life. It's coming out on DVD this Tuesday, February 20th. And you'll be hearing from Thomas Purifoy of Is Genesis History, which will be releasing a one-night-only event in theaters this Thursday, the 22nd, commemorating the one-year anniversary of the release of the film, exploring origins from a biblical and scientific perspective. You'll also be hearing from Tom Holliday of Saddleback Church, whose latest book offers encouragement on how to respond when we face life's negative circumstances. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, offering some insight into approaching male-female relationships biblically in the midst of confusing times, you'll be hearing from Nina Rosner of Greater Impact Ministries. Also some comments about a recent ruling from the Ohio Supreme Court upholding a state law requiring abortion clinics to have a written transfer policy in case of complications. Rachel Busick of Americans United for Life presents some analysis. Finally, from the Center for Science and Culture of the Discovery Institute, it's Ann Gager, who provides commentary on the recent cloning of macaque monkeys and the moral and ethical implications of cloning. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Michael Scott is co-founder, managing partner, and CEO of PureFlix, which has recently released the movie Samson based on the biblical story. With some behind-the-scenes insight into this story of a man who possessed extraordinary strength yet struggled with God's call, this is Michael Scott. Well, I think Samson is probably one of the most iconic Bible stories uh, there. You know, people both in the church and out of the church know about Samson and, and, and his story. And I think in today's world, you, you got all types of movies from the Avengers to Batman, Superman, and all these superhero movies that are coming out. I kind of liken Samson to the uh, biblical superhero. Yep. The only difference is his powers from God. And so I think it's just such a unique story with, you know, he pushes the, the, the pillars of the temple. He fights a thousand people with um, the jawbone of a donkey. All of those things, I think... I just make this story so unique and iconic as you look at it. And I think it's got a strong message in it. This message of Samson is obviously he made tons of mistakes throughout his life, never really went to the Lord's will. But in the end, he really opened himself up as a vessel, said, God, please use me. Even all my mistakes, God gave him a second chance. And I think for us, it's all about finishing strong. What are we going to do as we move forward? Well, and this film actually does dig into some, as we might say, the backstory of Samson, some of his struggles. We know from the Bible that this is a a flawed character, someone that that struggled with his own usefulness to God, but someone that God really used to help deliver his people. And, you know, that's, that's a great, as you were pointing out, that is a great story that can be applicable to us today. Right. No, it's absolutely. And can you imagine the pressure that must have been on Samson? You know, from birth, he was given that prophecy that he was going to save his people. And the pressure that must wanted to create, you know, he's a young guy that wants to probably go out there, see the world, do things, you know, everything like this. 
and he's constantly got this going on. And I think from that, he, he kind of, in a way, in his own way, rebels against that, what God calls him to do. But finally, in the end, uh, it, when he's blinded, he sees the clearest, which is funny. I've always said when he could see, he would do everything the opposite way. But finally, when he's blinded before the Lord, he realizes and he can see the clearest and sees what the Lord has for him and ultimately fulfills that prophecy. Well, and when we look at the story of Samson, obviously you guys want to be true to the scriptures, but you're also, yes. you're filmmakers, you're storytellers. And so there were some elements of the story that you really had to elaborate on or some aspects of the film that you really had to, to kind of expand the story there from the scriptures. So how did you find that balance about, you know, between being true to the scriptures and really telling a great story? Well, I, I think, number one, you won't find any Transformers or rock creatures in our movies. <laughs> no. We really took what was there in the, in the few chapters of, of Judges there about Samson's life. When you do a movie, you got a 120-page script, and there's only a few chapters there, a few pages. And so you really got to examine, we stayed true to the entire story that's in the Bible, but we had to dive in to the, uh, what was going on in history there. What do, we, what do we think was happening? What were the struggles? What was happening? To really show you what, what, how do we get from point A to point B in the story? Because even in the story, there's gaps of 10, 20 years and other things that happen. And so we tried to bring that to life, but really focusing on how do we stay true to the scriptures. And I think we've done that really well. And you get a better, clearer picture of who Samson was, what his struggles were, and why maybe he, he fought against God and the will that, you know, the prophecy that was put on his life and what, what it took to finally get to that place where he finally uh, was able to um, ultimately finish strong and fulfill God's word. Michael Scott of Pure Flicks here on The Intersection. Find out more about the film by going to samson.movie. Well, next up, it's filmmaker John Irwin in advance of its release on DVD. He discussed the documentary in which he was involved called Steve McQueen, American Icon, providing a look into McQueen's faith in Christ and his profession of faith late in life, as well as a depiction of parallel elements in the life of evangelist Greg Laurie. Here now is John Irwin. The interview with Steve McQueen, that's, that interview has never been heard before, and it was recorded two weeks before he died, and he talked about his faith and you know, his regrets and, and the, the comfort and hope that he had found. And uh, and it was completely unearthed over the process of making the doc. The, oh, wow. the film came about when uh, Greg Laurie first brought this story to me. Um, you know, I just, you know, I, I had a hard time believing it was true. <laughs> and, uh, and and come to find out, it, this really did happen, you know, and and uh, it happened in a very, very powerful way. Uh, which just shocked me. And so I, uh, I, uh, you know, remember vividly being at the Southern Cal uh, Harvest Crusade. And Greg told this story in a sermon. We had brought Mel Gibson down there to talk about his movie, Axel Ridge. And we were talking backstage, uh, the three of us. And, and, uh, and the more he shared about the story, the more Mel and I were just leaning in. And I think Greg went away because he had been studying the story. And then came back, and Mel was like, "Tell the rest of the Queen story." And I was, I was with him. I'm like, "Yeah, tell the rest of the Queen story," and uh, and it's just this incredible story about the biggest movie star in the world being totally empty at the top of his industry and going on a spiritual journey and finding Christ. Literally, the King of Cool, 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, became a Christian, and nobody knows that. And uh, and and he really did find the hope that he was craving. And I think there's a message there for all of us because I think a lot of us live and die under the lie that if we just had this or that, we'd be happy. You know, and uh, and I think that uh, this is a story that says, you know, uh, happiness. Uh, if you're if you're trying to get rich, famous, or whatever to be happy, it won't work. You know. And there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts, and uh, that's where happiness and fulfillment truly is. And, and this is a wonderful testament to that. And so it's something that we can we can all uh, apply. Well, and this is not just what someone might say a deathbed conversion, and you don't doubt the validity of those. This is something McQueen was on a spiritual journey, and his acceptance of Christ as his Savior was actually documented by his pastor, a pastor at a church, and then by the own, by the confession of his mouth on that tape. And, you know, he's talking about how, you know, he wished he had had the opportunity to share it. And, you know, and lo and behold, God opens up the door for Greg Laurie and John Irwin and Mel Gibson and others to to really share about this incredible work of God in his life. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, in that amazing, I mean, in in an amazing way, this movie fulfills the dying wish of Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Uh, And it's incredible that it's been buried for this many years and that we're finally the ones that get to tell it. Um, that blew me away and, and brought me great hope. And, uh, and so it was a wonderful story to tell. And, and, uh, and I just think that there's something there for all of us. And this is beautiful kind of adventure through the golden age of, of Hollywood. And, uh, and it's really just, we tra- treated it as the first complete documentary of Steve McQueen. You know, this, 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 uh, this part of his life had just been somewhat intentionally left out because it didn't match the King of Cool brand, you know? Mm. And so uh, we were just honored to to tell this part of his life and to partner with, with Barbara, his widow, and, and unearth things that had never come to light before, like, um, you know, this tape. And, uh, and, and to get to hold Billy Graham's Bible, you know, Billy, uh, he died with Billy Graham's Bible on his chest, clinging to it. And it, had been, and it was Billy Graham's preaching Bible because Billy Graham had seen him uh, uh, just before he went down to Mexico to have surgery and had given him his personal preaching Bible. And uh, to be able to hold that, that was incredible. I mean, it was just an amazing <laughs> story that, that I didn't, I was like, that is that true? Did that really happen? That's incredible. So, um, so it was a, it was a cool thing to be able to uh, tell the story and, and see it do so well um, in uh, as a one night fathom event all over America. John Irwin here on The Intersection. The address to find out more about the film is stevemcqueenmovie.com. And that film releases on DVD this Tuesday, February 20th. Well, Thomas Purifoy, producer, director, and writer of his Genesis History, discussed the concept of the documentary film narrated by Del Tackett, which includes scientists presenting evidence consistent with the biblical account of creation. This conversation took place in advance of the one-night-only presentation is Genesis History, a special anniversary event coming up this Thursday, February 22nd. Here now from a recent conversation is Thomas Purifoy. Well, you know, one of the interesting things about this is that there are so many things about this oh, topic. Oh, yes, yes. So when we approach this, um, it's funny, I was talking to a guy named Kurt Wise, and he's a very brilliant guy that had actually gotten his Ph.D. from Harvard. And um, at Harvard, one of the guys he studied under was Stephen Gould, one of the great evolutionary um, bio- or paleontologists. 
And what he observed is that the power, he argued, of evolution was showing how many different areas all moved in the same direction. Um, and that many things pointed to this. But Kurt made the observation, he said, if the Bible is true, then surely there are the ar- that argument applies even more so to the evidence that's out there if the Bible is really accurate. And so what I wanted to do was to show as many areas as possible um, that would lead this direction. So the geologist, I needed to have someone talk about the rock layers. Uh, so I had a sedimentologist, Steve Austin. I needed someone to talk about radioisotope dating. So I had a geologist whose background was in uranium. That's Andrew Snelling at Anderson Genesis. And moved along looking for scientists who had distinguished themselves as um, in their field. So they were ex- considered by their peers to be experts in that area. They were uh, had done PhD-level work in that area. All of them are really, they've gotten their degrees from secular universities, places like Harvard and Northwestern um, and, you know, in Australia and um, Cambridge and all over. Um, and so these are men that were extremely well-respected um, to be able to get a PhD from these high-level universities. So when I put all that together, although the film, is a, there's a lot of material in it, in one sense, I feel like I just barely skimmed the surface. Um, and that's what some of these additional materials you mentioned uh, that are that we're creating, something called Beyond is Genesis History. We've released the first edition of that, um, and that's just the rocks and the fossils. It'll be three volumes, and that takes, there's 20, 20-minute videos um, that goes in and say maybe Steve Austin got 10 minutes of the film. Well, he has five videos here where we show, or six, excuse me, we show him at Mount St. Helens, things that didn't even make it into the film. Uh, we show him with his nautiloid fossils. Again, had to cut it from the film. So um, my interest is showing that there is a depth of evidence and a depth of material that supports um, the biblical view of creation. I don't think that it is, as people will say, this is made up or so forth. Let people, people judge for themselves. The evidence is strong. Um, the Bible is very clear in what it says, and to be quite honest, when you look at the world around you, Genesis makes a lot of sense as being uh, just a good book of history. Mm. Well, and let's talk about some of the compelling evidence that your researchers, these renowned scientists, actually put forward in, in Gen- is Genesis history. What would you say would be maybe a couple of the most compelling examples that illustrate how scientific evidence is consistent with the biblical account of creation. Well, one of the things that I found most interesting, and this was something that I was unaware of, were this the reality of these geological mega sequences. And what they are is they're huge packages of rock strata that really stretch across the entire continent. Now, these weren't discovered by creationists. These were discovered by petroleum guys back in the early 20th century. But when you start looking at them um, and you start studying them, is how do you get these five? I mean, we're talking a package of rock that goes from the Grand Canyon up to Canada over to New York. Um, and these are layers are very uniquely um, laid out, meaning the layers that have the, the so it's a larger sediment uh, pieces are usually lower, and then they fine upwards to really fine, uh, like a limestone. Well, that's, this is really interesting because, as Andrew Snelling at one point said, is that how do you get that size of material put over that large of an area with that unique configuration with anything that's something like a global global flood, a slow and epicontinental sea of the slow rising and falling. 
really doesn't make sense with this. Thomas Purifoy here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to isgenesishistory.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Tom Holliday, Senior Teaching Pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. In our recent conversation, he shared material relative to his book, Putting It Together Again When It's All Fallen Apart, Seven Principles for Rebuilding Your Life. From that conversation, this is Tom Holliday. All of us, Bob, have life messages, uh, lessons that God has taught us that I think we need to pass on to other people. And uh, we don't like this, but most of those life messages come out of our painful experiences and the way God took us through. He comforts Mm. us so that we can comfort others. And so this is really a life message that started, oh, 30 years ago for my wife, Shondell, and I. We're young, I'm a young pastor in a, in a church up in Northern California, and a levee broke in our town and totally inundated the town. Uh, our church was destroyed. Our house was under nine feet of water. And so when this last, uh, this last fall, we went out to Houston to be with the people who had been through the flood there mm-hmm. and saw what had happened and were encouraging them. Uh, we went right back to 30 years ago and what had happened to us and how God had taken us through through that time. So I, I'm a young pastor. I'm having to figure out how do I encourage people when they're going through this kind of time. And uh, my mind turned to the book of Nehemiah because we were having to rebuild. And I remembered he had to rebuild a wall in, in Jerusalem. And there were just some principles that we learned together from that book that I've taught in the, in the years since. And Finally, it took me a little while, but finally have put it put it down in a book. Well, there are, as I understand it, seven different principles in this book. Tell me just a bit about how you really arrived on these principles. Well, I just read through the book of Nehemiah and thought, what did he do, and how how can we do it? And uh, I also, um, you know, if you think about what he did, actually. You have to get started to rebuild. You have to have the energy to do the work of rebuilding. And then you have to know what to do after you've rebuilt. All, all of those are important. And so this book includes all of those things. I, I would say it's written, my heart, more than anything, is for the people who need to get started. Because I know how hard it is to get started. When something has fallen apart, whether it could be a natural disaster like a flood, most often what we need to rebuild is a relationship. Relationships fall apart all the time because we're human beings. In little ways and big ways, they fall apart. When something's falling apart, it's really hard, I've found, to find the energy to, um, to begin to rebuild. I've talked to a lot of people who are going through that time of, of life, and what they say to me is, you know, if I had the energy, I'd do it. But I'm just so worn out from trying or from hoping, and I just don't know where I'm going to find the strength. And so to me, looking at Nehemiah, one of the keys is finding a place to, uh, place to start. Mm. Well, take us back. 1986 was when this occurred, when you were pastoring in Northern California, where you were a young pastor, catastrophic floods destroying your home, your church, of course, homes of your church members. How did you get started in that rebuilding process? What well, did God reading, show you? reading from Nehemiah was really helpful yeah. to me because uh, I, I think— uh, knowing that I'm going to need something rather than just getting to work, that there's something that comes first, that gives me the energy that will sustain me through the entire project or the entire relationship rebuilding. So you look at Nehemiah, and the Bible tells us he did three things first. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Mourning is uh, expressing your hurt to God, and fasting is focusing your heart on God, and praying is asking for help from God. 
that was very helpful to me. It's been helpful to me and, and a lot of others in the years since. One of the reasons we don't rebuild sometimes, I think, is because we don't mourn. And uh, sometimes we lose something, and because we can't mourn what we've lost, like maybe you have to rebuild a relationship with one of your kids. And there's some loss in that. There's some years maybe that have been lost. And unless you can mourn what you lost, sometimes you can't get to what God wants next in your life. Now, I'm, I'm saying this, I have to admit, as an American man. And uh, Americans aren't very good at mourning, and men aren't very good at mourning. You know, I, I think I would rather get back to work until the feeling goes away than really express my hurt to God sometimes. So I had to learn a lot about that in, in the years, and I've still got a lot to learn. But that, that starting at that moment starts you in this relationship with God, and you, you realize the only way I'm going to do this is by getting strength from Him. Tom Holliday here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website TomHolliday, H-O-L-L-A-D-A-Y dot com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through MeetingHouseOnline.info or visit FaithRadio.org. You'll find a link to The Meeting House homepage in the programming section. When you visit there, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests here on the Intersection podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also find the Intersection through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more about downloading it for a variety of platforms by visiting the website faithradio.org. Also, when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Nina Rosner joined me recently on the Meeting House program. She is Executive Director of Greater Impact Ministries. She discussed some of the dynamics of male-female relationships, as well as the concept of respect, on which she elaborates in the book, The Respect Dare, 40 Days to a Deeper Connection with God and Your Husband. She's also the co-author of the book, With All Due Respect. Here now is Nina Rosner. What would you say as far as being able to diffuse an uncomfortable situation, what have you found to be a key in doing that? One of the most important things that we can do in the middle of one of those situations is, first of all, be aware of our own feelings. And our culture doesn't let us do that. Uh, We're taught to stuff those things. And so being aware of how we're feeling if we're, we'll allow ourselves to experience that emotion, it takes like 10 seconds, 17 seconds, and the emotion actually will dissipate. And if we breathe deeply through our nose, we'll release serotonin in our brain, which calms down cortisol, which is the stress hormone we've just gotten because we've you know, thought he's saying this thing and we get upset. And then we're like, no, I'm going to breathe for a second. And I, I even go so far as to say, okay, hang on just for a second. I'll close my eyes and I'll look inward. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? And I'll focus on my breathing, and then I'll be instantly calm. And then I'll look at him and I'll say, okay, so how are you feeling right now? And you know, I'm, I'm using him in terms of you know, the men that I've, I live with, uh, <laughs> you know, my teenagers and uh, my husband. And, and that one question, what are you feeling right now? If I say that in a way that is gentle and kind, he stops. And he's like, I don't know. That's usually the first response. And then I just, I just wait for a second. 
and wait, and then he's like, okay, this is what's going on, and, and then I'll, I'll ask a question. I won't receive the blame that's thrown at me, and I'm not perfect at any of these interactions. By the way, I mess up too, but you know, a lot of times we'll blame somebody else instead of looking at our own behavior, but when I won't receive the, those words, and I'll just ask a question following up, okay, what is it that you're really wanting here? How can we how can we do this a little differently? What are you looking for? And so those two small things can literally change a relationship interaction hugely, very, very quickly. Hmm. Now, the problem is, is we won't do that. <laughs> and that's why boundaries are important, because one of the boundaries I have for myself is that I'm not going to interact with somebody when I'm upset. And... The reason for that is because if we stay upset and stay in an interaction, we're just feeding our brain more cortisol, the stress hormone, and it shuts down the executive functioning part of our brain. So that means I don't, I don't have any logic happening here. I'm just all emotion, which is really not ever helpful. I need both sides of my brain working to really do an interaction well. And so when I um, take a moment... And, and I have that boundary. And honestly, I mean, when you, you fail at it over and over again, you realize, oh, I'm still doing this. Or, gosh, this morning I yelled back and I shouldn't have done. You realize it later, then you realize it when you're in it, and then you realize it when it's starting to happen. So it takes a lot of time to get to a place where you can go, okay, I'm starting to get upset. But if you don't do that, you're still just going to do things the way that you are now, and it doesn't work. So, you know, why not mm. start? Why not? create that boundary and you create the boundary for the marriage too with which means that you you protect the marriage from those conflicts and you protect your children because conflict in the home is actually more damaging to a child than divorce well nina last question i want to circle back to something that that i mentioned earlier with respect to the scripture as far as husbands being encouraged to love their wives wives to respect their husbands why do you think that that scripture is written as it is it's it it, it shouldn't be it doesn't seem like that it's it's intended to let the men off the hook in some way well yeah i think god knows exactly what he's doing so he's going to talk to us in ways that he knows we're going to mess up in later right so I'm going to be wired, and I, I don't mean to speak for all women, but I've, I've seen this a lot. Uh, I'm going to be wired to treat my husband like one of my kids because I get in the mode of you know doing kid stuff, and you know then I can be condescending, and then I can be bossy, and none of that is respectful behavior. And I really need to be respecting my children too, but nobody models that in our culture, so we don't know how, and that's why we wrote with all due respect. Um, but men are told to love because that's their opportunity. What happens with them? Okay, I love this woman. I married this woman. I'm going to check that box. Career. And that happens over and over and over again in our culture. And so God's like, hey, dude, love your wife. And he's telling the women, hey, you need to respect the man you married. Because we do that when we're dating. We do all this stuff when we're dating. And then we acclimate to that and we take things for granted. And the only solution to those things is constant gratitude. Nina Rosner here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to greaterimpact.org. Well, this is The Intersection podcast with Rachel Busick, staff counsel for Americans United for Life. 
In our recent conversation, she discussed the case of a Toledo, Ohio abortion clinic, which challenged a state law requiring abortion clinics in the state to have a written transfer agreement with a medical facility within a half-hour driving distance from the clinic. The Ohio Supreme Court upheld the law. From that conversation, this is Rachel Busick. This Ohio Supreme Court ruling is very important. Uh, so they issued this ruling on Tuesday basically saying that abortion facilities don't get a free pass to break the law just because they provide abortions. So this law that Ohio has um, has been around since 1996, which is over two decades. And so this law requires facilities that provide surgical services outside of a hospital to maintain a written transfer agreement. Um, So this written transfer agreement is with a local hospital, and it basically facilitates treatment of a facility patient in case of an emergency or an urgent medical complication that the facility is incapable of handling since they have limited staff and limited uh, medical, medical equipment and things. So the general standard for emergency intervention of a facility patient is to Uh, be transferred to a local hospital that is 30 minutes away. Um, And so when we're talking about emergency situations, urgent medical complications, every minute counts. So longer than 30 minutes, the patient's safety and quality care is compromised. Um, So the abortion clinic uh, that violated this law is Capital Care Network of Toledo, which is located in Toledo, Ohio, as you said. And uh, they provide surgical services i.e. they provide surgical abortions, and they do this outside of a hospital. So they're subject to the written transfer agreement uh, requirement for these facilities. So Capital Care had a written transfer agreement um, until July 31st, 2013, when it expired. Um, So Capital Care failed to get a new written agreement for five months. And then when Capital Care finally did get their written transfer agreement, Uh, They got one with an out-of-state hospital that was approximately 52 miles away and would take about 60 minutes to get there. So, as you can see, this is almost twice as long as the 30 minutes that is required for these emergency situations. Um, So, the Ohio Department of Health contacted Capital Care. They had a hearing, and they decided to revoke Capital Care's license because it violated this law. so this capital care went to court and they said, this isn't fair, we provide abortions, we should not have to follow this law, like it's not fair. The Ohio, it went up to the Ohio Supreme Court and the Ohio Supreme Court agreed that the Ohio Department of Health um, uh, revocation of their license was supported by reliable, probative and substantial evidence and it was in accordance with law. Basically, the Ohio Supreme Court agreed that or abortion providers must follow the same laws as other facilities in the state that perform these invasive surgical procedures outside of a hospital context. So this is a really important decision um, because so often we see abortion providers think that they can disregard the rules, that the rules don't apply to them, that they should get an exception um, from these general common sense health and safety laws because they provide abortions. Um, And so basically this case says that the fact that capital care provides abortions does not give it a get-out-of-jail-free card. It has to follow these 
laws just as every other facility that performs surgical procedures outside of a hospital. And so the enforcement of these laws is very important, and we see these take different forms, whether it's, um, whether it's through the written transfer agreement or other forms. Uh, and it's important that these laws are enforced for abortion providers because abortion providers have a published record of exposing women to unnecessary medical risks. Um, American, uh, Americans United for Life uh, publication, Unsafe, documents evidence and true stories about the harms and even death that many women have faced at the hands of the abortion industry. Um, and that's why it's important that the states uh, have, these, uh, have these laws on the books that ensure the health and safety of women and that they enforce these laws and that just because someone provides abortion doesn't give them uh, a get out of jail free card when it comes to these laws. Rachel Busick here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to aul.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Ann Gager, Director of Science Communications for the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. She's also Senior Researcher for the Biologic Institute. She offered some analysis of the moral and ethical concerns regarding cloning. The discussion occurred in light of the cloning of two macaque monkeys in China. From that conversation, this is Ann Gager. These two macaque monkeys, um, they they worked with over 100 different starting eggs and and embryos. And of those um, more than 100, only two survived to become little baby macaques. So you're talking about a, a massive loss of life. Oh, I should back up a little bit and say, why are we concerned about human cloning if it is macaques that have been cloned? Um, macaques are primates, and um, primates are the group that uh, are related to humans, including chimpanzees and gorillas, and um, macaque is one of the um, simpler, smaller primates. And um, they've been grouped together because of certain characteristics they have. And so it's been hard, very hard to clone primates, and nobody has succeeded up till now. So it's a breakthrough. And it's a scary breakthrough because mm. it opens the way for trying it with, it, with humans. Now, I can, I can say that therapeutic cloning with humans has been going on for some time. Um, so that's nothing new. It's, um, like I said, problematic. And if, if I had my way, there would be no such thing. But what could happen next is the reproductive cloning of humans. Hmm. And so what is the intended purpose for these macaques that have been cloned? Research. Okay, so um they want to they want to have identical individuals that um make experimentation easier because two identical individuals are going to have similar characteristics and they're not going to mess up the experiment by random variables. <laughs> if you understand. Um, it, it, that's the reason. And then um, theoretically, if 
if they were human beings instead of macaques, um, you could clone uh, yourself and have younger copies of yourself, which would then provide uh, possible organs to replace any in you that are failing. It's been in science fiction um, movies and novels more than once. The idea that clones can be used for replacement parts. Um, it, yeah, it's it's a clones would be would be a problem for our society. Mm. We already struggle with issues of human dignity and how to treat the human person. Uh, what the beginning of life is like is threatened by abortion. The end of life is threatened by euthanasia. Um, we have problems with the selling of baby uh, infant aborted baby parts. Um, we have problems with human trafficking. Um, we have problems, multiple problems with how we treat each other. In fact, you could think of clones as being similar to slaves. They would belong to the person who um, donated the material, or they would belong to the research institute uh, that would use them. Um, it would be tough. Uh, some people debate whether clones would even have souls. Now, in, in my mind, they're fully human. They would, of course, have souls. Um, but in a world that is not following the Judeo-Christian worldview, too, too many problems. When I started writing this article, I was under the impression that there were laws on the books that would control this because there were discussions of this back in 1996 when the first major cloning success happened. And um, presidential panels were called, and they made recommendations against cloning. And then nothing happened. We have no federal laws on the books prohibiting cloning. Nothing that says, if you do this, this will be the penalty. Ann Gager here on The Intersection. The Discovery Institute website is discovery.org. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find the Meeting House homepage. There's a link marked Meeting House On Demand. That is a link to the media center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the Intersection through that homepage and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Also, the Intersection podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more at faithradio.org. Also, when you go to the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to faithradio.org. Scroll over the programming tab. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.